0: Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck.
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a beautifully hot, hot sunny day in L.A. I have another amazing guest. All my guests are incredibly amazing, but um, he's also a, a business colleague that I've gotten to know recently and really gained a lot of respect for. He has worked in family law since 1998. He's assisted in preparation of hundreds of family law cases from complex family litigation, cash flow, computation, business and asset evaluation, distribution, child, spousal report, Retirement benefits, stocks, bonds, um, along with a lot of child custody, paternity, LGBTQ plus family law. And there is a laundry list on his website that I know that I'm missing a few things. He's the name partner for the, with the family law firm of Kaplan Geck, located here in Los Angeles. In the last couple of years, his cases have been covered by the Los Angeles Times, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, People, E-Entertainment. And the New York Post page six, which is always a very welcomed thing to have on your resume. So I want to welcome Gary Geck, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, it's really great. So talk to me a little bit about how you how you got into family law.
2: Uh, so I got into family law on a complete fluke. Um, when I was about seventeen, I was still in high school and I was writing for a newspaper. This is, of course, to our listeners way before the internet when newspapers were hundreds of pages. And it wasn't one of the best ways to advertise. Um, and they had a, it was a local paper, but very successful. And they had a really large sexual harassment suit and they had to clear house an editorial. And the publisher who was in his eighties had called me into his office and he goes, Hey, listen, kid, you're the only one who knows editorial. Um, how about when you graduate high school you come work for me i'll give you your face column and you name your price wow. and i guess wow this is exciting and you know like ten dollars an hour which sounded like a lot of money to a 17 year old <laughs> at the time and i mean it was the 90s so you could actually live in ten dollars an hour back then right um, and that's how i started and i moved out of my house at uh, right after i graduated high school uh, i was doing all their restaurant and business reviews and um, learning very quickly that, you know, paying all your own bills and uh, $10 an hour wasn't all it's cut out to be. I went out to dinner with a friend of mine, and um, her mom came and joined us. Her mom had just left a very famous firm to start her own firm, and she had been representing um, all the Motley Crue wives at the time. She did Heather Locklear's divorce from uh, Tommy Lee, and that was representing Randy Brandt and uh, her divorce from Nikki Six, And she needed somebody to help write declarations because back then all of family law was done on written pleadings to the court. And so she asked me if I wanted to come and help do that, paid a Mm -hmm. lot better. I started working there when I was 19 um, and never left. I put myself through college working on that firm and then put myself through law school working on that firm. And now I own the firm and my name is on the door.
1: Wow. What a great story. I don't even know if I personally have I've known you for a little while now. I didn't even know if I knew that story. That's that's really, that's really admirable Just to find something like that when you're, you know, that young and really find that you love it. And, you know, now present, you must know it inside and out. So, so what, do, what do you actually enjoy most about about this position with family law?
2: So there's two things. It's, you feel good at the end of the day, because most of the work you're doing is good. You're kind of helping people navigate usually most traumatic and difficult time in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people can go through their whole life and never be in a lawsuit. And this is one where, you know, mm-hmm. at least 50, married couples statistically will be in. Um, so I love that. And I love the gamesmanship of it. I love that, you know, many cases are like a chess game. and You get to strategize and get to see it in action. And that's the part that I love the most.
1: Yeah, that's I've had a few people on, actually, some experts. They they love the chess game. That's what they call it as well. So, I want to talk, uh, you know, obviously, you have quite a bit of experience with families, and and I want to talk a little bit about children. Like, you know, I wanted to start by asking you, when you have a custody case, and how often are kids brought into the process?
2: Um, In some way, the kids are brought into the process 100% of the time. Um, Sometimes it's very apparent they're in the process they have to go and meet with certain specialists or experts of the court or they have to meet with social workers um a lot of the time it's latent right they get to experience the parents conflict and the parents bring them in Mm -hmm. um where children become the battleground Mm -hmm. um and so they become sometimes vessels for information going back and forth I, I don't, very, very few cases that I see, there there are some where the children are generally unaffected. And it really takes two very good, strong parents who can prioritize their children and deprioritize their emotional agenda in favor of their children's mental well-being.
1: Do you see that they do that very often? Um, no,
2: they don't. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. right, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, they don't. It, and it's difficult, and I get it. I and mean, it's a learning curve, too, right? It's not right. like there is a rule book out there. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there's so much emotion in family law. Right. And it's very, very difficult to kind of have to turn it off, right? If somebody has really wronged you in your relationship, mm-hmm. uh, most of the time you don't have to see them two or three times a week on custody right. exchange.
1: Right. Well, that, that's, that's something I was going to go into in just a little bit too on the emotional side of it, because that's the traumatic side. So, how, how is it when you get into, let's say, a custody case? Because I want to talk about money. On the other hand, we're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But from a custody perspective, how, how do you help the f- child? Can you help the child? Are you involved in that part of it? Or can you get them help? Or do you even step into that?
2: Um, so, again, my duty pursuant to the state bar and kind of the, you know, the rules of my profession is I'm supposed to advocate for my client and counsel my client, Mm -hmm. but the often spoken, even though it's an unspoken rule in family law is our number one responsibility is to these children. Mm -hmm. So the law is supposed to protect the children and the courts look at a very specific paradigm of communication between the parents Um, in determining what's going to be in the best interest of the children and how to make decisions. And you have Mm -hmm. to remember that um, for judges, you know, this person gets a snapshot. They have 20, 30 cases per day. And Mm -hmm. they make very, very difficult decisions on custody. So it's kind of teaching the parent how to parent in this environment Mm -hmm. and how to separate their own wants and needs from what's best for their children. And I think that's the service we as family law practitioners provide to our clients and to their kids.
1: That's, that's has to be so powerful because I, you know, I've always wondered, you know, I mean, my parents didn't divorce, they were married for almost 60 years. And I always wondered, like, how does a child get represented if, you know, there's a representation for this parent and there's a representation for this parent, right? And then you've got this child in the middle who, who's representing them. Like that's always been a weird gray area for me. How do you how do you explain that?
2: Well, so there it's twofold. There is a um, role in family law called minors' counsel, and mm-hmm. sometimes they are appointed by the court to represent the interests of a child, but it has to be a case that requires it. So something where um, there's a strong issue between the parent or a strong need for the court to understand the needs of the child and for somebody to advocate on the child's behalf. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that in custody cases, a very small percentage uh, involves minors counsel. Mm. And I work within the family law court, which is mostly divorces um, and parentage actions, which are paternity actions. But there's a whole other court called dependency court that deals with uh, Department of Children and Family Services, Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's set up to protect the children and to have somebody advocate on behalf of the children. I gotcha. don't necessarily think that it is a highly functional court. I don't think that LADCFS is highly functional at this point in time. Um, but unfortunately, that's the system that we have out there.
1: How do you handle the when they're traumatized by this? I, I mean, do you are you able to watch and say, okay, well, there's a level here we need to get this child help? Or what is that threshold for you?
2: So, you know, it's a very, very tough question because there is trauma, and you want to make sure that the children have a means to, in a safe space, to express how they feel and get some help. Mm-hmm. But you're also limited in many ways to what it is you can do. I mean, this child has parents, right? And I can counsel my client as to what I believe is necessary for that child, but that client is free to take my advice or not take it. That client's free to take my advice and to say, you know what, I don't want to work with you anymore and go to another attorney. Um, So it's a balance that you have to strike, right? You need to make sure that your client's interests are protected, um, but you also want to make sure you're doing the right thing in this point in my career i have the option to reject cases or to fire clients um -hmm. starting out it was a lot harder right you need every case you can get Mm -hmm. um so i i like to be able to sleep at night and know that i've been doing the right thing and i think that's kind of the guiding force in how i approach my cases and my custody cases
1: that's 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 very admirable because that's uh Looking at it from that standpoint versus it's it's all about the wind, you know, it's it's uh, it's doing right by your client. But do you ever see a, a system that would actually be with just parents and not have to involve the children? Do you ever see that being able to be feasible?
2: I, I don't think that's feasible. It's too enmeshed, right? It's, I mean, any system, let's say that there is a system like that, right? And you have a mom and a dad, and one of those people is just losing terribly, it's going to involve the children anyhow, because that person goes home and that person is depressed. Uh, that person, depending on what orders they're getting, can or cannot afford food and rent. So mm-hmm. it's going like to trickle down one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. It's There's no way to keep children out of it. And the system that we have in the United States is not perfect by any means. And I tell that to my clients all the time. If you're looking for justice, the court's not the best place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's, you know, it's a one size fits all solution. And sometimes it works. Most of the time it's supposed to work and people are really trying their hardest for it to work. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always work.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a very, that's a very good way to put it, Gary. I I like how you put that because it's, it's, there's this pipe dream that we watch TV, right? (laughs) And this is how it works. And then everybody goes home and somebody's mad and somebody's happy and, doesn't always work like that like right it's like we what we see on tv and how it's portrayed to me it's so hard sometimes because i'll get questions from people do you ever get this like where people ask you questions like well, what about this this and this and you're like that's on tv that that's not really how it works
2: absolutely those are the two questions i get right it's the i saw this on tv or my other favorite is well but my friend blah, 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 blah. It, yeah. And it happens all the time, but your friend probably had very different facts in their case.
1: Right. Uh, well, they're all thumbprints, right? Everything is so unique and so different. It's hard to even put them in the same category, even though it's family law, they're also unique. Correct.
2: And it, it, not only that, I mean, that's absolutely correct, but also family law specifically has so much judicial discretion, right? You don't have a jury. You have a judge who is the mm-hmm. trier of fact and the finder effect. Um, and that judge makes decisions. And so you can have the exact same facts and the exact same evidence and be in two courtrooms right next to each other on the same floor in the same courthouse and get wildly different results.
1: Well, well. So that's why that's I like to put out there for people, it's it's not what we see on TV. It's not the same all the time. It's it's still human making decisions, humans making decisions based on their interpretation of law, right? So it's not the cookie cutter thing that we I think tend to know it to be. And that's where the disappointment starts to happen. And then on top of that, you've got the trauma going into the situation. And so do you ever um do you ever suggest so let's talk about if you had to prep a a, a child or a parent to help prep a child to go into to court. How, how do you do that?
2: Well, so one of the things that I kind of make sure is to actually not have the parent prep a child. So um, I would give the parent the tools to discuss with the child what's going on, and that is, you know, depending on what is age appropriate, is we're going to go in and we're going to meet with. Uh, this person is going to ask you some questions. They're very nice. And just, you know, whatever it is, give them an answer. Uh, because the people who normally interview children are professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are primed to notice when a child has been coached. And mm-hmm. a coached child is going to be fairly obvious. Not always, but most of the time. Um, and so there's very little that I would tell a client to do or have the child say, mm-hmm. A it's you know it's in many ways if you kind of coach a child full on it's evidence dampering right right you're telling the child what to say and b it's a child so it's not going to work that great anyway right um tesla so do you just you know get your kid my goal is to make sure that the child's not scared or traumatized by the process that's not where it. i was going
1: that's exactly where i'm going so how, how do you do that i mean it's i mean obviously we can, you can't coach him and tell them what to say because that that is completely against the law but from the traumatic situation, being traumatized from it, how, how do you help with that?
2: It's really difficult. You want to make sure that there's a system in place for the child, that the child has a safe place. One of the greatest tools we have as family lawyers is to have the child participate in what's known as safe harbor therapy. So mm. it's therapy that cannot be weaponized. And what I mean by that is the child has a therapist the therapist only shares, you know, ultra important things with the parent to the extent that there's a danger presented. Other mm. than that, this is the child's sacred place. Mm. Not only that, but that safe harbor therapist cannot talk to the court, cannot talk to a child custody evaluator. It's okay. really the therapist is there just for the child. And it's a safe, safe space for
1: the child to say whatever the child wants to and is that offered all the time for, for every single case?
2: Well, you know, we have to remember that uh, there is a degree of privilege that we forget in litigation. So to be able to afford that kind of therapy and listen, the good therapists aren't taking insurance, mostly, right. at, at, at least in um, West Los Angeles, where I practice. Um, so, you know, you're looking at anywhere between 200 and 400 dollars an hour. and that's a car payment to most people, right? Yeah, so right. Um, you have to be able to afford it. There are social services that are available for kids, but those are very difficult to get. And then within those, it's very difficult to get somebody who is very qualified. A lot of the time you get students who are making their hours and they care, but they're not going to be there in you know, a long term. They're there for a year or two. Right. Um, so there is an access issue when it comes to... Um, the ability of different socioeconomic levels to get necessary care.
1: Yeah, there's uh, one of my guests early, early on, Joel uh, Rolopkis. He um, is head of the Change Your Algorithm, which is a free online therapy, which I've been wanting to work with him on, trying to get a section of, you know, court trial therapy or help, you know, connected with him because he's, he's just an amazing organization. But, um, you know, it's something that that I've been really passionate about is how to not only just to help children that have to go through the process because they're already traumatized or they're reliving trauma, but at the same time, even witnesses, you know, that could be parents. And so let's talk a little bit about the money side. Like, so when you have to go in, because obviously you're talking about, you know, custody and money couldn't be too higher emotional things right for clients that they have to deal with i mean how how do you if you have like a really emotional client how do you work with them when it comes down to a very emotional subject like money
2: um i explained to them that court is essentially a game and you can win or lose by simply deciding if you're playing or not right Mm -hmm. um so you have to choose to play that's number one um otherwise you're going to lose and yep. number two it's a very short period of reality that you have to deal with and this kind of in family law specifically um it's a very odd situation because normally when you're suing somebody you're not also forced to talk to them every day or every other day about your kids right, right. Uh, but in family law you are the person you're suing on the other side is also somebody you need to communicate with and then the court looks at those communications no, and do. so it's teaching people how to be business-minded as opposed to emotion-minded.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's teaching people how to deal with specific personalities uh, more and more in my line of work. And I know my colleagues are hearing the word narcissist over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that seems to be the diagnosis de jour. Um, right teaching people how to deal with different personality types. You know, there are a variety of methods and resources out there. One of them, for example, for narcissists, uh, divorcing a narcissist is a gray rock method where you just become completely cold and don't engage. And it's essentially like a cat playing with a mouse. If the mouse is just playing dead, it's not fun anymore. Right?
1: Right. Right. But then how how does your, how does your client, like we're gonna talk a little bit on the healing side of this, but I mean, how does someone heal like really get through that? Because obviously you have to stuff it down because it's such an emotional thing. So I mean, is it easy to get somebody in that mindset?
2: It's different. People are different, but one of the things I absolutely recommend for clients is therapy and specific kinds of therapy. So obviously I am not a therapist and I remind my clients of that. It's you know, you don't want to be big. You know, I'd be very expensive therapist at my hourly rate. Um, But a large portion of what I do is essentially talk therapy, right? Uh, You still have to talk them through it. But I recommend two things. If I believe that my client has experienced trauma and is informed by that trauma, I recommend that they seek out specific trauma therapy and there are multiple modalities that deal with it. And I said, you know, pick one that works for you, but try Mm -hmm. them all. So, um, that's number one. And number two, I want to make sure that they have the support in place to kind of deal with it. And if the trauma trigger is ever present, you know, the ex-husband or the ex-wife may be the trigger of the trauma, Mm -hmm. um, that they get some cognitive behavioral therapy to learn how to deal with the trigger, to not be affected by the trigger. And some do it well, and some don't, um, Mm -hmm it's just, you know, it really depends on the person and the level of trauma and kind of their emotional intelligence and what they're able to face up and process. But normally, the more distance that can happen, the better in situations like that.
1: Right. So do you, do you find therapy to be a bad word when you are talking with them from a legal perspective? Does not it, does that... and, and I've seen it, you know, I've seen this kind of happen over the last 25
2: years in this business. It's, um, Kind of just more and more prevalent. I think one of the greatest things that these new generations have done for us is really uh, made therapy and self care a very accepted and mm-hmm. popular um, pastime and something that is absolutely fine to do. Um, so there's not that stigmatization that we used to have before, where there's you know, if you're in therapy, there's something wrong with you or you're self obsessed.
1: Yeah, that well, that's that's really. That's well put because it's true. I mean, back in the day, it was like, you know, mentioned therapy and you were supposed to go up on the hill somewhere to some asylum or something. I went to high school or I went to college in Athens, Ohio, and they had a sane asylum there. So it was always the thing that said, don't, don't make me send you to Athens. And it was always like this scary moment of like, wow, you know, I, I, I want help, but where can I find that help? So I do think we, I'm hoping this podcast is doing the same thing. We're just starting to open the conversation where we can get more emotional help for, you know, people who are testifying, either first time testifying and it's traumatic for them or um, reliving trauma and then how they're kind of going to get through it. But but when you have someone who's like extremely nervous, do you, like pre-trial, do you have them do meditation, mm-hmm. chiropractic? I mean, have you done any of that? Because I've been working on some um, pre-trial medit- uh, self-guided meditations that walk people through the process and I'm finding that they're actually – well-received because it's just taking away some of the unknown, you know, the the fear of the unknown the anxiety. And so have you ever done that with anybody?
2: So that's interesting that you say that I do something very different, but also very similar in that I will run them through testimony and I will ha- ask them questions and go through it. So the process is not foreign. Mm-hmm. It's I have so many clients who are scared of getting their deposition taken. And I said, you know, I'm right there. I'm objecting. You can take a break. It's like a soft run through an actual trial. So do the deposition. And after they do it, they're like, okay, you know, a few hours into it, it's not so hard anymore. Right. It's also kind of learning them that, you know, it's a marathon, not a race. So one of the best, you know, for me as a litigator, the best information that I get from a deponent is usually towards the end of the day when they're tired and comfortable
1: hmm um, Right. That's yeah. true. I never yeah. I never really thought about that. That's that's a great strategy, but you're right. It's it's people throw their guard down at some level because I mean, I mean, I've been deposed and I I've said this before on this podcast, it was one of the worst days of my life, but that's because I've been in the business. I knew too much, right? Mm-hmm. I almost wish I didn't know as much as I did. But it's it's also um that's one of my actually meditations that I just finished up is how to prep yourself for your deposition and what to think about and feeling strong and then let your lawyer, they're there for you. You know, you're, you've got this, these advocates and you've got to, you go to trial, you've got a judge who's an advocate for you. So it's, you know, giving them that support system. So it's, um, it's, it, how do you actually then if you have somebody who can't is not, can't testify, how do you handle that? Like they just absolutely cannot testify.
2: Listen, if they can't testify, they can't testify. I mean, it's, I had a case where my client's deposition was taken. It was a, case where my client was, you know, alleging a great deal of serious, serious abuse um, and I saw that the experience was really, really traumatic for my client and it's a conversation I have with a client I said, well, you know, trial is not for everybody and you have to have the stomach for it and there is an advantage that you're going to get you know, maybe right, because I don't wear the black moomah, I don't make the decisions, Um <laughs> financially, maybe more beneficial for you to go through with trial said, but I can't quantify what your mental health costs. Only you can do that. And so, but I got to tell you from my professional experience, I think going through this will be very traumatic. And if I were you, I would really consider approaching settlement on these terms because some clients just can't do it. And there's no amount of money that's going to make it worth it for the person to fully break down
1: right and that's where it's i think a lot of people don't know it that it's a different kind of currency right to let it go right. as, a, as a currency and some like you said your mental health versus you're going to get a dollar amount that letting go and moving on with your life is its own currency at some level correct i mean especially from a family perspective i would imagine a parent needs to move on and live their life and get their kids through school and stuff like that so
2: Yeah, I think the perfect kind of example for that that we know is, you know, Tina Turner saying, I just want my name is, you know, there wasn't a single dollar that was worth it for her. Right. Right. And, you know, she did just fine.
1: Right. Yeah, because I I look at, you know, I look at, you know, we only see celebrity out in front of us sometimes. But, you know, I look at like Gwen Paltrow and her ex-husband and their kids and how they tried to do this, you know, the uncoupling and trying to talk about it versus, you know. Is it true that you really can get it through it without being contentious? Is it is it possible?
2: Absolutely, and I've seen that more times than I can count. So it's possible, Um, and people do do it. And I think it's frankly, if you're able to do it, it's the best thing that you can do for your kids. But you know, is it a mindset?
1: Is it just a mindset? Is that what makes that different? Just how they're not revengeful or just a a mindset of children first? Or what do you think makes that different?
2: It's a few things. So A, it's just kind of the type of person that you are, right? Um, You know, petty people are going to be petty. Um, Vengeful Mm -hmm. people are going to be vengeful. Um, And number two, it's normally, at least when I see it, it's a product of a very specific type of divorce. It's the we've grown apart divorce not the somebody did
1: something divorce. I gotcha. Yeah, I can see that would probably be much more hurtful, revengeful. I got to get back at that person. They've really hurt me. And that's that's usually that's why when I see so much anger, it's really about fear and sadness. And um, I'm sure you deal with that all the time. But it's I've been able to see deeper into a lot of my clients and witnesses that I help prep you know, there's a sadness here. So when someone's really angry, I'll ask the question sometimes, like, okay, what, what are you really hurt from? And they're like, what, what, I'm not hurt. Well, okay, maybe not this moment, but there's something here. And they think about it, come back to me later and be like, yeah, I think you're right. This is something that's really been bothering me. And how do I get through that? So I'm not a therapist either, but I can pinpoint those things when I'm doing witness prep as to how can they try and let go of those little things. So, so Gary, um, you know, what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, not enough. I mean, it's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's every lawyer's answer. That is every single lawyer's answer (laughs) I have on here. Not enough. It's so funny. Um,
2: well, I mean, listen, right now, personally, my life, I really am burning the wick at both ends. I have very young children and I have a, you know, very grateful to have a very booming practice. So it's difficult just kind of find the time here and there and you steal the time here and there. Um, and you make it okay for yourself to steal the time. Um, it's with lawyers, especially, especially in my line of work, you know, it's my time is financially quantifiable. Mm-hmm. So. It's very, very different. It's not like you know, finish this tomorrow. It's like, okay, if I spend an hour watching TV, I know exactly how much billable time I'm losing. You just, right? yeah, right. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> time is
1: money, in that way. And I, I get it because you, it's you have the approval from the client. You've got the approval to do things, and you know that's your budget and why you're going to let it flow out. So, I, I get that part. But at the same time, it's uh, you know your own health and your own mindset. Um, do you know, do you, what kind of activities do you get out and do anything fun, like kids and swimming or beach or?
2: I mean, you'll, listen, all of that sounds pretty amazing. Unfortunately, I'm not doing really much of any of that. I, you know, I just got back from out of town where we, you know, booked the weekend and came back a night early. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> sounds like me. <laughs> I got so, work to do tomorrow. Yeah. Um, No, I mean, you do it here and there, you know, I I steal the moments within the moments, right? So if, for example, I, you know, right now I'm walking the kids in a stroller every night from 7.30 to 8.30. So they kind of go to sleep in the fresh air. Uh, But that's also kind of my time to just kind of take in the nature of my neighborhood. And um, it's really nice to, you know, steal that hour for myself and for them. So that's nice. Um, You know, and then you just kind of treat yourself with Things you probably don't need every
1: now and then. Right. (laughs) That's for sure. I could, I can have a few of those, but we probably won't do it here. (laughs) (laughs) But, well, listen, where do people find you, Gary?
2: Uh, Our office is in West Los Angeles on the corner of Wilshire and Gailey, online at kaplangecht.com, or you can just Google Gary Gecht, G-A-R-R-Y. There's nobody else with my name in the whole wide world. So pop right up.
1: (laughs) Uh, lucky you and maybe unlucky you. <laughs> okay, great. Well, listen, uh, I really want to thank you for being here today. It's been, I've been really wanting to talk to you just because I thought, you know, you're such a, I just love talking to you in just period. <laughs> anyway, and I'm really, you know, honored that you came and talked to us today about this because it's I think it's a very important subject. And, um, and I really am trying to get the word out as to how do we just help each other get through the process. It's not an easy process, whether you are the lawyer you're the judge you're the witness you're the child you know i think it's just important that we kind of spread that out so thanks so much for being here today
2: well thank you and thank you for giving me a new resource i didn't think of this as a kind of a two-way street but this is going to be a great resource for my clients to listen to these episodes as they prep because the more information they have the more control they feel they have i think it's really important it's a great service you're doing
1: Oh, well, thanks so much. So, all right, everybody. Well, listen, uh, thanks again to Gary. And, you know, we all just have stuff in our lives and we just don't forget to go out and spread some love. All right. Thanks again for listening. And uh, we'll talk next time. Thanks for listening
0: to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at JulietHuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30 year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity
1: they represent. Thank you.